0: We're continuing this series on the basics of our United Methodist belief, emphasizing uh, this grace that is the primary attribute of who God is. I, yesterday, I uh, was at a workshop in Mooresville for this annual conference. Won't we'll get into all uh, what that was about, except that it was good stuff for churches. And the bishop from this annual conference got up to speak, Bishop Ken Carter. And he started out his talk, he said, you know, we as United Methodists, we don't lead with fear. We lead with grace. We lead with God's grace. That's the primary attribute of who God is, is grace. So, we're here to talk some more about that grace. Last week we discussed prevenient grace, this going before grace, this grace that is there before we even realize it. It's expressed in creation. It surrounds us. Uh, several people texted me last week. They said they liked that illustration I used about grits. So if you want to hear that, tune in uh, online from last week A look at our Facebook page or our YouTube channel. But it's the reality that surrounds us. And today we're going to talk some more about how we experience God's grace. Remember, this is all God's grace. This isn't three different types of grace. This is all God's grace. It's just how we experience it uh, throughout our lives. Here now the word of the Lord is found in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the second chapter. We're just going to read two verses. Remember that you are at a time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I talked last week about God's grace and the relationship to a house. This is the classic illustration that Wesley used. And as I said last week, provenient grace is the porch of the house, the porch where uh, we you know, just go there and stand there. It's a place where the Amazon delivery person just drops off the package, right? It's where the mailman leaves the mail. It's where the salesman comes and knocks on the door trying to sell you something, but doesn't really want the relationship. He just wants to sell you something. It is a place of proximity, but not relationship. And we're always close to God because God's always close to us. We just don't have that. Some people just don't have that relationship with God. And today we're going to talk about what it means is step into that house, to have that relationship, which we call uh, the door of the house, justifying grace. The text uh, that was just read to you from Ephesians says that we were want strangers to God, foreigners to God, but now we can go to God because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Matthew that at the time of the crucifixion, access to god was given to us in this act of the temple curtain by the holy holies being s- split in two symbolizing that we can walk directly to the father because of what god has done for us in christ the doorway has been made open for us to have experiencing god in full in jesus christ but what does it mean for us to have access to God? What does this look like? You know, we we try all sorts of ways uh, to experience God or or to have uh, this relationship with God. And using this analogy of the house that Wesley gives to us, uh, can you imagine if God says to you, I want you to build your house for eternity. I want you to to design and build this house. If God said that to Ed, Ed, I want you to build a, a house that's gonna last for eternity at something that you can reside in, something that you can occupy. I'd say, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Alicia's amazed when I can even screw in a light bulb. I am not a handyman at all. So the house that I would build uh, for eternity would look something like this. I think it's gonna be on the screen here, right? Yeah, there, that's what it would look like. Yeah, that, that, that's the house that I would design and the house that I would build. It, 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 that is my uh, ability for construction on this life and for eternity. If it was left up to my devices and and your devices too. I know some of y'all are very crafty and very handy. But compared to what God has in store for us, he says, I've got the door open for you to experience something well like this. Look at this. Is that on the screen? It's going to come. Nope. There you go. Note that it's warm. Okay. (laughs) It has a pool. But that's what God wants for us. God has desire for us to be in a mansion. God is building for us for eternity, and the doorway for that is Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul also writes in the book of Romans that we are justified by faith, having peace with God through Christ, having access to this grace through Jesus, access to this grace through Jesus justified by faith, justified by faith, to step through that doorway, not into an outhouse, but into a mansion that he longs for us to reside with him in glory by faith. What's it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith? You know, a lot of people in our culture and in our time equate faith with belief. You know, I believe there's a door there. I believe, yeah, there's a door standing right there. It's a doorknob. You know, you can, it has hinges on it. You just open it up, walk right through it. I believe that it's there. A lot of people equate faith with belief. And, yes, there is a belief aspect to faith. I mean, you have to actually say, yeah, there's a door there. But faith is more than just assenting to a fact. Acknowledging something that is. Faith is actually trusting enough to walk to that doorway that's already open and stepping through, believing that there's something wonderful on the other side. It's not going to be an outhouse. It's going to be a mansion with rooms for you to explore that will go on and on for eternity. It takes faith. Have faith. I had the... Awesome privilege of serving on staff at Montgomery First United Methodist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. It's a big Gothic church. It's a very large congregation, a a very prestigious church in that area. It was a TV church, live television, uh, before the days of the internet. So it was a, a great place to be in, a great place to learn and to grow in my craft of ministry. One of the coolest things about being a part of that church was that there were lots of retired ministers that hung their hat there. Some were on staff doing pastoral care, but some of them, they had retired in Montgomery and they wanted to go to a church like that. And so I got to interact with these men, they're all men, and learn from them, hear great stories. And I can tell lots of them, I won't do that today. But one of the guys that I interacted with was a fellow named Ben Sawada. Ben, as his name implies, was of Japanese descent. In fact, he, he was a missionary in Japan for a little while, but it was funny. Ben had a deep southern accent. He grew up in Mobile. And, and uh, he had a wonderful sense of humor. I won't tell all of his stories right now. But Ben was a small in statue, but he's a big Auburn man. So naturally, we got along. And Ben took me to several ball games there at Jordan-Hare, and on one occasion, uh, he said, well, Let's go to the game together. And several folks in the church heard about it, and they were having tailgates all over the Auburn campus. And said, Hey, why don't you and Ben show up and go to these things? I said, Ben, we, we can get lots of good food. And he said, Ed, just have faith. Have faith. You don't need to uh, overindulge at these places. I said, But Ben, there's going to be a lot of good cooking. He said, Just have faith. So we went to one a little tailgate party, and I was starting to reach for some food, and Ben said, Have faith. So I turned down some these delicacies that these uh, Southern women had made, and we went from place to place doing that. And he'd grab my hand and say, no, no, just have faith. I said, Ben, look at all this food. He said, no, just have faith. So we go walk into the stadium, and we start to walk to the scholarship section uh, where, you know, people that give a lot of money to Auburn University are sitting And I said, Ben, your tickets aren't there. I know you got good tickets, but these are the steps to, you know, the scholarship section. I don't think we can get in there. He said, have faith. So we walk up the stairs, go to the entryway to the scholarship section where all these rich folks are going to be whining and dining there for the ball game. And there standing at the door is a friend of Ben's, a retired United Methodist pastor, Charles Brett, who served as a pastor at First United Methodist or Auburn United Methodist Church for a long, long time. And Charles opens the door for us and said, welcome, gentlemen. And Ben turns to me and says, I told you, have faith. And there we walked into this great banquet full of food and got to watch a a pretty good ball game even. But see what I'm getting at? My guide, my friend told me to have faith. There's something good in store. And I followed along. Well, that's what we are to do. We're just simply to listen to somebody that's a lot more trustworthy than Ben Sawada, though he's a great man, gone on to uh, his heavenly reward. We can trust in Jesus. He says, just have faith. Trust in me. Trust that I have done it all that you need to be made right in the sight of God. For that's what justified is, that we are made right in God's sight. We are aligned with God and God's vision for us because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All we have to do is say, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to step through that door to this wondrous banquet that you've prepared for us. Well, we place our faith in a lot of things, don't we? I mean, we we think we're going to find meaning in our jobs or in our abilities and our looks or our youth or our health, all sorts of things. We put place our faith in uh, here in this life. But also, I think there's something that many of us do, I know I do, and Mr. Wesley did, we're gonna talk about him in just a second, that we think, this is too good to be true. I, I, I don't have access to the scholarship section, much To this heaven, I, I've gotta really earn that. I've gotta make all this money to get to that, or I've gotta do all these good works. I can, I, I'm so unworthy to step through that door into that mansion. That's even more beautiful than that picture that Sam put on the screen. I, I can't I, I can't do that. I've got to work hard. I've got to do more. I've got to sin less. So many people are, are that way, and that's the way John Wesley was. Mr. Wesley declared his intention to enter the ministry in 1724. He uh, took classes that I couldn't even think about taking, much less passing. Uh, When you look at the curriculum that he had to take at Lincoln College here in Oxford University, he had to take rhetoric and he had to take Latin, he had to take Arabic. He he took course the classical uh, biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek. Uh, He did all those things so that he could be made worthy to be a, a priest in the Anglican church. His brother came to Oxford a few years later and he and Charles, John Wesley and Charles, started what was called the Holy Club, to live pious and righteous lives, to get up early, to study scripture, to pray together, to fast, to do good works in the community because they wanted to be worthy, you see, of what God had done for them. Well, Wesley in 1735, along with Charles, went to Georgia to be missionaries there. Charles was the secretary for James Oglethorpe, and John went to go preach to the Indians. Well, I won't get into all that happened there in Georgia, but it wasn't a rousing success, I'll just put it that way. He came back to England after his mission there and said these words, I went to America to save the Indians who, O Lord, will save me." During his time in America, he ran into a group of German pietist Christians called the Moravians. The Moravians were people that believed that you could experience God directly in your life. And Wesley was so impressed with that. He was so impressed with their confidence in the love of God. He longed for that himself. So when he came to England, he began to relate to some of them that were there established in England. And he got into relationship with a German Moravian named Peter Bowler. Now, Bowler had come to England to learn English to become a missionary in America. So when he started meeting with Wesley, they didn't speak the same language, so they spoke together in Latin. Can you imagine that, conversing in Latin? Because neither one of them knew German. One didn't know German. One didn't know English. Finally, uh, Bowler learned some English, and they talked together, and he kept telling Wesley, you don't earn God's grace. It's given. You don't earn god's salvation it's a gift and those words ring in, in wesley's mind on the most famous date in our methodist heritage may 24 1738 wesley he said went very unwillingly to the society meeting at aldersgate street a meeting of people who were gathered together to hear and to about god and to proclaim love for each other and he heard Martin Luther's preface to the Book of Romans, starting out like this, for we think that we can earn God's righteousness by our works or by us trying to receive a reward. And we do so very unwillingly because we are under the law. But, he said, we receive grace by this free gift given to us in Jesus Christ. Wesley, hearing those words, thought within his own heart, I felt that my sins, my sins were forgiven and I was made right with God. And then the famous line, my heart was strangely warmed because he felt that God loved him. And in honor of those words, I'm wearing my John Wesley socks that say, feet strangely warmed. What Martin Luther was saying, what Wesley was echoing, was the words that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, where he's talking about this struggle that he has in his own life. The things I don't want to do, I do, Paul says, and the things that I ought to do, I do not do. Oh, who can rescue me from this law of sin and death, Paul says. And then the conclusion of that chapter said, thanks be to God for our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, for those of us who walk through the door, we're made right with God by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, a gift. All we have to do is say yes to it. Yes to it. Have you said yes? Have you had a time where you said, I want to walk through that door. I want to enter into this household of faith. I want to experience this grace for myself. Have you? You online, have you? As I said last week, I'll tell a little bit of my story. I've said it before in this place. But as I mentioned, Provenient Grace worked in my life from before the time I was born, I mean, none of us has to be born. That's a gift of grace. I had parents that took me to church, and then one one Sunday during a lay witness mission, I heard the word of Christ beckoning to me to step through the door. And I went down to the altar of the Mary Esther United Methodist Church, and there said yes, to be justified by grace through faith. Have you done something like that? in your own life? And as grace continues to work in my life, I know after I enter that household, sometimes I have not been the best guest. I have strewn around things I shouldn't have been messing with, and I have left undone some things I know the Lord wanted me to do. And I know, too, in my own heart, I don't know about you, there's a voice that whispers into my life, well, you aren't doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're uh, still doing some of the things that you did. You're still patient sometimes with the people you love the most. You aren't sometimes slacking your devotion, not helping the poor enough, and on and on and on that list comes on, trying to take away the confidence that we can experience in Christ. And we'll talk about that more in subsequent sermons as we grow in grace and grow in this Christian assurance because Wesley had these struggles too, but the voice is there to tell us, you don't earn any of this. It's all a gift and what we do in the household is a response to that gift. We all need continually to have grace poured into our lives, don't we? Have grace poured into our lives as we carry on this journey with Christ. Whether you haven't ever walked through the door before or you're just motioning around the house some, we all, as we are justified, begin this process of trying to grow in grace. That's what we'll be talking about more throughout the series. Where are you in the relationship to grace? I imagine there might be someone online, maybe someone that is in the sound of my voice here in this room, though, if you get up on a snowy day uh, to come to church, I mean, you probably probably have a pretty strong relationship to Christ, but maybe not. There may be someone in the sound of my voice right now that feels so unworthy of grace. And Kathy, this might be a good time to come forward. And you too, John. There's a story that's told uh, from the state of Illinois about a man named Charlie who was a, a liquor runner, a small time mob boss in that county, and someone that either had bought off the law or made everyone afraid of him so he could do about whatever he wanted to. And several people, well, they mysteriously disappeared because of Charlie's orders. Well, one day he went a little too far and had one of the political leaders in that area killed the state government got involved. He was arrested, tried, and convicted of murder and was sentenced to be hanged uh, there in that small rural Southern Illinois County. When uh, Charlie was convicted at his trial and ordered uh, to be hanged in the not too distant future from that time, he said, I want you all to come out and watch me swing as I spit in the devil's eye. And everyone, you know, heard him as, with his anger and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to show you all, I'm, I'm so mean that the devil's even going to be afraid of me. Well, during his time in jail waiting his execution, a Methodist pastor went to visit Charlie and began to share with him about the grace of God and the love of God. And Charlie began to realize the mistakes he had made in his life and the sin that he had dealt with in life. And when it came time for him to be executed and to be hung, he climbed up the scaffolding and right before they put the rope around his neck, they asked if he had any last words. And he began to sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. And the Methodist preacher who was there with him began to sing with him. And the crowd that had gathered there to watch a a dreaded criminal die in anger, they all began to sing too. They had come to watch a man die, and what they ended up seeing was a man entering into life, eternal. Singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch, even like a hardened criminal like Charlie, someone like maybe you who have sinned in your own life. And maybe some of you have stepped through that door and said yes to Jesus, but you know you're not where you ought to be. You know you're not where you ought to be. There's something in your life or some things in your life, well, they need grace to wash over them. They need to be cleansed. We love to sing that song, Amazing Grace. It's probably the most popular hymn out there. And the story of John Newton is an interesting story, the author of that hymn. John Newton was a rough and tumble seaman. Uh, He uh, went to sea at an early age, was a cabin boy, and then an apprentice, and even uh, captained his own slave ship. He uh, was even enslaved one time on the African coast where he was captured. But on March 21st, 1748, he gave his life to Christ. And he cussed a little less, and he, Uh, drank gave up drinking, but guess what? He continued in the slave trade for 16 more years because grace had not worked fully into his life yet. And in 1764, he realized the error of his ways, the sinfulness of slavery, and he became part of the abolitionist movement and became even an Anglican priest. You see, y'all, as we talk about grace throughout these weeks, grace is always working in our lives. That amazing grace that Newton penned and we sing about. And so right now, John and Kathy are going to play that wonderful hymn. And you're invited to sit and listen and offer to God your life and where you think God needs to work His grace in a new and amazing way. You can sit there, the altars are open though. And that's a a tradition that we have in the faith. And we come to the altar and we kneel before God and say, God, let your grace work in me. Change this part of my life. Or maybe if you've never said yes to that grace before, maybe say yes to it. And particularly if you've done that, come see me but grace is always at work and we all need it in some form or fashion. So let that grace come to you as we hear these two talented musicians play this great hymn that saves wretches like you and me.